Hello and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. In 1931, the British Academy elected its first female fellow, Beatrice Webb. A sociologist, economist and social reformer, Webb was one of the four founders of the London School of Economics. In this episode, Josie Harris, FBA, takes a closer look at Webb's extraordinary life and legacy. My name is Josie Harris and I'm a retired professor of modern history at the University of Oxford. And the great thinker about whom I'm going to be talking today is Beatrice Webb an exceptionally clever and fascinating woman who was the first woman ever to be elected to the British Academy. She was a sociologist, an economist, a labour historian, one of the major contributory founders of what we now call the welfare state. She was deeply engaged in the expansion of the trade union movement. She was a founder member of the London School of Economics, the Fabian Society, one of the most influential political organisations in this country. She was a major contributor to the cooperative movement. She was a great admirer of the Soviet Union at a time when perhaps it didn't altogether deserve her admiration and in general was admired, hated, loved, feared by many. She was certainly a woman of many parts. Among others, of course, she was renowned for her beauty. But quite separately from these things, she was a great writer. She wrote two major works on the way in which English society operated. And throughout her life, she kept volumes and volumes and volumes of daily diaries, which stretch over nearly 50 years. Beatrice was born in 1858. She was the eighth of the nine daughters of a highly successful Midlands businessman. She was brought up to considerable wealth and social prestige in a family that had modestly progressive ideas, but were, I think, nevertheless very happy with their own highly privileged position in the progressive wing of late Victorian society. Beatrice was torn between immense self-confidence and deep, tortuous self-doubt. She remarks at one point in her diary she could never embark upon any public engagement without reassuring herself with a personal mantra. If I ever feel inclined to be timid as I was going into a room full of people, I would say to myself, you're the cleverest member of one of the cleverest families, in the cleverest class, in the cleverest nation in the world. Why should you be frightened? I think you don't go around saying that to yourself if you're naturally full of self-confidence. It's a paradox, I think, only very partially assuaged by her marriage to the reassuringly placid Sydney. Sydney, I think, certainly tranquillised her and calmed her down. But nevertheless, she remained throughout her life torn between prosaic and practical problems and deeply metaphysical and spiritual ones. Well, here with me to talk about Beatrice is my colleague Ben Jackson, Associate Professor of History at Oxford University, and who I hope can throw some light on this mysterious woman. So, Ben, how would you see Sydney's very, very different way of looking at the world as impinging upon Beatrice's? 
Just thinking about the sort of intellectual paths that Sidney and Beatrice took to Fabian socialism, they do take quite different routes. Beatrice's early work was in the field of social investigation, and she spent a lot of time finding out about working class life in quite a grassroots way. So she worked for Charles Booth's Social Study of London. I mean, I wouldn't say she was friends with the the very poor, but she had experience as a social investigator, which gave her a degree of first-hand experience of working class life. And, and then she'd also undertaken the study of the cooperatives in the north of England. And so Beatrice came at social reform from quite a kind of bottom-up grassroots way insofar as she spent a lot of time getting to know working class life and getting to grips with both the poverty of a lot of working class life at that time, but also the organisational structures of working class life, cooperatives, trade unions and so on. So in, in Beatrice's diary in 1890, she explains why it is that she became a socialist. She writes the following... And then I turned from the luxurious homes of these picked men of the individualist system and struggled through an East End crowd of the wrecks, the waifs and strays of this civilization. Or I enter a debating society of working men and listen to the ever-increasing cry of active brains doomed to the treadmill of manual labour. And the whole seems a whirl of contending actions, aspirations and aims, out of which I dimly see the tendency towards a socialist community in which there will be individual freedom and public property, instead of class slavery and private possession of the means of subsistence of the whole people. At last, I am a socialist. Now, Sydney came at social reform from a totally different angle in the sense that a lot of the early Fabian socialism that Sydney was involved in emerged from a kind of liberal radical economics and spent a lot of time thinking about economic theory and deriving socialism from the idea of monopoly and the kind of notion that within capitalism you get landowners and capitalists and also people who possess particular kind of rare skills who are able to kind of monopolise those factors of production that they have control of and extract what they called a rent from society. And so their kind of economic argument was that you could redistribute or socialise that rent and that was the kind of path towards a kind of top-down socialism. Whereas it's interesting that Beatrice is sort of coming at it from the kind of experience of lived working class life. And so in a way, when they come together, there is a kind of complementarity. But then you might also say that in a way, Beatrice pushes Sydney away from that kind of economic theory towards a more sociological way of thinking and towards a kind of greater interest in the kind of historical study of institutions and, and society and away from the sort of more abstract economic theory that Sydney had started out from. That's very interesting that you're emphasising, in a sense, their complementarity rather than their unity of thought. Sydney Webb came from a very different background from that of Beatrice. I don't think one can call him exactly working class, but he certainly came from the lesser end of the managerial classes, if one can put it like that. And he was very well read about all kinds of practical things that Beatrice knew nothing whatsoever about, like finance and accounts and other things, very useful if you were a social reformer who needed some practical skills. They married in 1892, but I think they'd known each other on and off for nearly five years before that. But I don't think Beatrice really noticed Sidney until after the final breakdown of her relationship with Joseph Chamberlain. Joseph Chamberlain was a a leading member of the more interventionist side of Victorian liberalism, who was well, was to become fairly indistinguishable from a a form of new business conservatism. 
he was a very, very powerful, charismatic figure whom Beatrice did fall madly in love with. And for several years, she was obsessed with him, both before and after the break in their relationship. But um, in the first diary, you can hear her writing about her ill-fated relationship with Joseph Chamberlain. May 1890. I succeeded in my effort to rise out of the agony of that relationship into a life of vigorous work. May it not be possible to cast even the memory of it from me? It has haunted me day and night. I watch his life with feverish interest. I observe narrowly from all the tiny details I can gather from newspaper paragraphs and personal gossip the effect of his marriage on his character. It has seemingly withdrawn him from all active sympathy with that mass of struggling poverty. He has become a man of society, enjoying wealth, leisure, social position and a charming young wife. I think if Beatrice had been willing to give up her sort of social reform for his way of thinking about social politics, their relationship would have flourished much more. But Beatrice, to give her her due, she couldn't bear the thought of becoming a tame wife of a famous man rather than being a person in her own right. Sidney was very smitten with Beatrice from the start, but there's no question of love at first sight or even physical attraction between them until, well, one wonders if there ever was. 20th of June, 1891. On the face of it, it seems an extraordinary end to the once brilliant Beatrice Potter to marry an ugly little man with no social position and less means, whose only recommendation, so some may say, is a certain pushing ability. I am not in love not as I was, but I see something else in him. A fine intellect and a warm-heartedness, a power of self-subordination and self-devotion for the common good. And our marriage will be based on fellowship, a common faith and a common work. She found Sidney a very useful and helpful person to assist her in the kind of social reforms that she was beginning to be interested in. You could imagine Beatrice living quite a different life had she ended up married to Joseph Chamberlain and clearly she would have been much more subordinate in the kind of relationship with Chamberlain and forced into a more conventional role as a sort of supporting political spouse. Ironically, I suppose she does end up as a political spouse when Sydney eventually becomes an MP in the 1920s, but clearly the relationship between Sydney and Beatrice is much more equal than the kind of relationship that she might have ended up with with Chamberlain. There is this period, of course, of the Royal Commission on the Poor Laws when Beatrice is very much a public figure. In, in fact, it's probably the period when she's most prominent as a public figure. And I'm quite interested to know what you think about that period and whether Sydney is a figure in the background propelling her with new ideas about, well, things like insurance and social security, labour relations and so on, or whether Beatrice has arrived at those in her own right. I think it's, it's very difficult to know. It might be worth just briefly explaining something about the Poor Law Commission. So in 1905, the outgoing Conservative government appointed a royal commission to investigate the operation of the Poor Law, which was the framework of money that was paid to people who fell into extreme poverty, which was operated on a kind of localised basis. And there were thought to be a number of kind of problems with the operation of the Poor Law that required a royal commission to sort it out. And Beatrice was appointed as one of the members of that royal commission. And it 
became one of the big set-piece debates of Edwardian social policy because once on the commission, Beatrice found herself up against not only people who were defending the existing practices of the poor law, but a sort of rival group of reformers from the Charity Organisation Society, spearheaded by Helen Bosenkett, who had a different vision of how the poor law ought to operate from Beatrice's vision that was more concerned with individual character and the organisation of philanthropy rather than state action. So this became a very symbolic debate between different views of social welfare at that time, and Beatrice became a very prominent figure in arguing within the Poor Law Commission for what they then called the breakup of the poor law, by which they meant disaggregating the different functions of the poor law so that instead of anyone who was poor being treated by one service, there would be a, a multiplicity of different services that would deal with people who had become poor because they had ill health or who were old or children. And in some ways, people see that as kind of prefiguring a sort of modern welfare state model. We know from contemporary evidence that between 1815 and 1834, there were whole sections of the population who, to use the modern terminology, were unemployed or underemployed, sweated or vagrant, existing in a state of chronic destitution, handloom weavers and framework knitters displaced by machinery, millwrights and shipwrights thrown out by the violent fluctuations in the volume of machine-making and shipbuilding, frozen-out gardeners and riverside workers rendered idle every winter, and masses of labourers stagnating at the ports or wandering aimlessly up and down the roads in search of work. With all this able-bodied destitution, the Royal Commission of 1832-34 to chose not to concern itself. It's sort of difficult to sort of unpick the kind of Sydney and Beatrice influence. Certainly you get the sense that Beatrice had her fairly clear views and vision of how the welfare state should operate. And it's sort of interesting, given what you were saying at the beginning about this kind of ethical, moral dimension to Beatrice's thinking, the way in which they sort of try and integrate both a sort of structural analysis of poverty, because part of what they're arguing is that people are poor through no fault of their own and that there needs to be state action to help that. But they're also saying that there are these kind of moral problems that are connected to poverty that need to be dealt with in the poor law as well. And in extremists, they do think there has to be some kind of coercion for people who are unwilling to kind of contribute to society. I mean, one of the things that's a sort of consistent theme in the web's social policy and political thought more generally is this idea that there's a sort of obligation on everyone in society to contribute and to work and that people who don't do that are guilty of a kind of parasitism. And so certain kinds of unemployment they sort of worry about from that point of view is perhaps what saying the outcome of the, the Poor Law Commission is a majority report that's dominated by Helen Bosenkett and the Charity Organisation Society, a minority report that's dominated by Beatrice Webb. And then what then happens is the government of the time, who by that point are the Liberal government that comes in, they reject both <laughs> recommendations <laughs> and move towards this in- insurance-based model. And so it's a very frustrating experience for Beatrice that they launch this great campaign to try and advocate for the recommendations of the minority report and for the first time really engage in sort of broad-based grassroots campaigning and find that they don't make any headway with the government. And so in some ways it's also a seminal experience for them because until that point their idea was that they would seek to influence governments of all parties. But they found to their frustration that at that point after the Pro-Law Commission that neither the Liberal Party nor the Conservative Party seemed to be a reliable vehicle for the ideas that they wanted to put forward. And so I guess one way of looking at that experience as well would be it's one one sort of event that pushes them on to the Labour Party and the idea of having a sort of separate party away from the existing party system that they could have input into. 
Yes, Sydney in the early 20s becomes the MP for Seam, a Northumbrian mining community. And it's fair to say that his performances in Parliament don't live up to his contributions to public policy as a private individual. He was not a confident parliamentary speaker, and I don't think he had much to offer to the particular kinds of problems arising in the early and mid-20s. I think apart from anything else, the sort of constraints that government was operating under as a minority government meant it was really quite difficult to do anything kind of meaningfully in terms of big reforms. And of course, that government was then overwhelmed by the economic crisis. So again, that's not a, a great success in their public life. People who are very good at thinking out ways of implementing public policy are often very different from people who are good at defending them in the public arena. And Beatrice and uh, Sydney are not so good at being representatives as they are at thinking out the actual structure of how policy should work. Now, what drove Beatrice's career. What drove her from conventional late Victorian reformism along the sort of radical phase of the long march that culminated in her visits with Sydney to the Soviet Union and to Moscow in the early 1930s and to their famous conclusion that Soviet communism, not British liberalism or progressive socialism, was the clue to the new civilization of the future not just in Russia, but the future of the whole of the modern world. Ben, can you explain to us the rationale and the pressures behind the Webb's conversion to Soviet communism, of which they have been really quite critical in earlier times? One thing to say, first of all, is just that, of course, the Webb's are not alone in making this move in in this period. And in, in, in some ways, they're representative examples of a sort of wider trend among disillusioned leftists and, and intellectuals in this period who gravitate towards the Soviet Union and, and communism. A, a sort of sense that the capitalist system is running out of steam in the 1930s. In in the case of Britain specifically, you have the fall of the Labour Party in government in 1931, which some people on the left attribute to the the sort of the forces of capitalism throwing Labour out of office rather than to the inadequacies of the, the personnel in the cabinet. And that builds a picture of the capitalist system being kind of inhospitable to sort of reformist energies. And so the Webbs go to the Soviet Union in 1932 and have what they think is a rigorous look at how the the Soviet system works. And then they publish this big book, Soviet Communism, A New Civilization? in 1935, which then famously, infamously in 1937 is reissued without the question mark. And, you know, like these other leftists are kind of drawn to the Soviet Union, they come to believe that the central planning of the Soviet system is working and is effective in the face of the depression and mass unemployment. But I suppose in the particular case of the Webb, they see in the Soviet Union essentially what they want to see, which is they see a system that they think is a bit like the kind of new moral community that they want to create in in Britain. I think it's it's sort of interesting word in the title of the book, civilization, that tells you something about the sort of way in which they think in terms of 
civilizational rises and, and falls and the sort of sense that capitalism is not just a sort of economic system but a whole sort of code of values and morality that is decaying and they think extraordinary as it now seems to us that when they went to the Soviet Union they think you can see there a new moral code taking shape new spirit of kind of service to the common good and obligation and all, all the things that the Webs had been keen to implement in Britain. It is a distinctive feature of the social arrangements of the Soviet Union that to a degree unparalleled elsewhere they provide for every person. The Soviet Union is the first to strive without discrimination of sex or race, affluence or position, to produce not merely an intelligentsia but a cultivated nation. Yes, I think there is certainly a, just a loss of confidence in the traditional democratic system which both Sydney and Beatrice have had until a very late stage of their life. If you go back to 1909 and the time of the Poor Law Report, there are many things going on which they disapprove of, but they in no sense despair of getting a public voice for their kind of causes. In fact, they're very confident that they're able to do that. Whereas I think by the 1930s, they've lost confidence, really. Will this new civilization, with its abandonment of the incentive of profit-making, its extinction of unemployment, its planned production for community consumption, and the consequent liquidation of the landlord and the capitalist, spread to other countries? Our own reply is, yes, it will. The Webs did not speak Russian, <laughs> and yes. so they were, to some extent, in the hands of the people who were who were showing them round. And it was a, a certain vision of the Soviet Union that they were presented with when they went there. And I guess what they thought they saw was something that looked a lot like their kind of ideal society in the sense that they thought there were burgeoning consumers' cooperatives. They thought there was a trade union movement that didn't get distracted by politics and focused on bread and butter issues of collective bargaining. And they admired the Communist Party elite as being almost a kind of secular priesthood, serving the public good and seeking to advance the communist society. They die in the in the 1940s, and that is really the period of peak enthusiasm for the Soviet Union in Britain, because it's during that mid to late period of the Second World War that the Soviet Union is extremely popular because of its contribution to the war effort. And so in that sense, they're very much swimming with the tide at that point. So one level of that enthusiasm is simply that the Soviets were great allies during the war and very important in the winning of the war. But it also spins off into kind of public debate and, and rhetoric, a kind of argument that the kind of society that the Soviets have built is in some respects seen as socially desirable, if not in terms of political democracy or civil liberties. The, the idea that you could have a society that was planned to avoid unemployment becomes a very resonant one in the 1940s. That's actually one that William Beveridge is influenced by as well when he's writing his reports during the Second World War. Thinking about Beatrice and feminism, I was remembering the very disparaging way in which she writes about Helen Bosenkett, who of course was a very distinguished woman in her own right, but Beatrice thought she was a pathetic little thing. Can you tell us a bit more about Beatrice's views on women in public life? 
Well, I guess one way into that might be to talk about her views on women's suffrage, which if you're thinking about what is the big campaign for women's rights that was happening in the late 19th, early 20th century that was around Beatrice as she was coming into public life. And famously, Beatrice, for a period of her life in the late 19th century, up until about, I think she says, 1906, was against women getting the vote. So that set her at odds quite dramatically with a whole range of women's rights activists and organisations at that time. She then moves away from that position, obviously. (laughs) Was she against women's rights because she thought that women were so immersed in domesticity that they wouldn't have a proper sense of the public good? Or was it for some other reason? I think there's various reasons she gives for it. And and what one might be just that, in a way, you sort of see this throughout her whole career, I suppose, that she sort of thinks political rights are not as important as social and economic material concerns. What she's really interested in, actually, is how women are treated in the workplace or how children fare. And th- those kinds of issues are the ones that she thinks are actually more important. So in a way, she just doesn't think it's that important. That might be one way of thinking about it. I mean, I suppose it's also true that she comes from a family background that is not tremendously enthusiastic about democracy. And so at that point in her life, she's still a perhaps from the shadow of her father and the kind of conservatism that she grew up with. One thing you might add, just sort of thinking historically about what feminism meant at that time, is that feminism didn't mean the same as it does in a post-1960s second wave feminism sense of equal rights and the kind of issues that emerged in the the late 20th century. There was a very strong strand of feminism in the interwar period and, and the Edwardian period that was actually based around the idea that men and women had distinctive roles and capacities and that women had these caring roles and that you should design the welfare system to take account of that. So that's famously where the idea of family allowances came from. When Eleanor Rathbun argued for family allowances, the idea was it was supposed to be a way of the state recognising and paying for the care work that women in particular undertook. So in that sense, I think Beatrice probably sits within that wider landscape of a sort of feminist activism that was maternalist in some ways and oriented around these kind of issues to do with family life and child raising and sort of less focused on then what becomes the kind of bigger feminist issues about the kind of distribution of care work within the family in the late 20th century. That isn't really on the agenda or discussed very much yeah. at this time. And so in, in that sense, she looks more typical, I suppose, than if you're comparing her to kind of 1970s, 1980s sort of feminist. I have a feeling that Beatrice would have seen me as rather in the light of Helen Bosenkett, the little woman. (laughs) The fact that Helen Bosenkett had a first-class degree and was herself a very clever person, I think Beatrice would would not have been in rapport with Helen's kind of intelligence. I expect I would have got on famously with Sydney, but... (laughs) It's sort of hard to disentangle it, but I think there probably is a gender dimension to the way that she was perceived by a lot of her contemporaries, and and clearly there are a lot of men at that time who found it quite difficult or problematic to deal with a woman who was as assertive and, and intelligent, and so I think it's quite hard to disentangle those gender questions from the way in which her personality is portrayed because in a way it's a bit like Margaret Thatcher in some ways is someone who has a similar forbidding presence that I think is partly to do with the fact that people found it hard to think about how women could kind of exercise authority in a kind of time that was very male dominated 
and they just didn't have the language or framework to think about it without resorting to stereotypes. So clearly she was quite a tough character, <laughs> but I also think there probably is a layer of gendered language that kind of goes into the way that people talk about her as well. One of the web's most important achievements, I think, is the establishment of the London School of Economics, which has become, over many years, one of the, um, the major centres of academic life in this country. It was founded as a very small institution in 1895 with the help of George Bernard Shaw and an inheritance from Henry Hunt Hutchison. So Beatrice wrote, In old age, it is one of the minor satisfactions of life to watch the success of your children. Literal children or symbolic. The London School of Economics is undoubtedly our most famous one. Bitters Webb died in 1943. Her husband died four years later. The casket containing her ashes was buried in the garden of their house in Passfield Corner, but later both of them were interred in Westminster Abbey. So if we think about the Webbs as a unit, think about Sydney and Beatrice and the work they did together, then I think their legacy would be in pioneering the sort of particular distinctive form of gradualist socialism and social reform that you get in Britain. And I think one, one index of their success in that is that almost everyone who comes after them on the left in Britain feels the need to define their position in relation to the Webbs. And this is to some extent why the Webbs have become kind of caricatures or stereotypes, because all of their sort of ideological descendants feel the need to settle accounts with the webs and see what they take from the webs and what they reject from the webs and so famous example is in 1956 Anthony Crosland and his book The Future of Socialism which was the pioneering text of the revisionist wing of the Labour Party at that time I had a kind of bit in it where he talks about how he wants to depart from the webs and has this phrase where he says that total abstinence and a good filing system are no longer what we need on the route to utopia and we need to move towards a sort of more liberal kind of socialism but just the fact that Crosland, and even today, I think when people are debating in the Labour Party, there's always this thing called the Webb tradition or the Fabian tradition that has to be reckoned with. It sort of tells you something about the persistence of them as a particular kind of political tradition. My overall conclusion about Beatrice is that the greatest and most positive impact has been on social welfare. She transformed the lives of many people in this country. The idea of a society in which every person, however poor, has a right to public support seems to me a very important one. I think it's the, the sort of combination of the sort of social science and the passion for a new society that I think makes her such an interesting figure. I think also she did very actively promote certain aspects of modern British society that I think are still worth having. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk. Okay.